Hey, Evan. Hey, Joe. Hey, what time is it? It's time for another episode of Runtime Run Rundown. Let's, Let's go. go. Hello. I did hey, it this Joe. time. <laughs> I was going to do it, and then you got me faster. <laughs> yes. Yes, I did it. Damn it. Okay. It's the lean in and talk. Hey, Joe. Yep. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm good. There's uh, someone here with us. There is. Hi, Serafina. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. Uh, for everyone listening, um, we have a guest on today. Serafina is uh, my tech lead over at the place where we work. And um, yeah, we're going to be talking about uh, talking about some articles, talking about some stuff today. Um, we are happy to have you on. I am super excited to be here. I'm an avid listener of the five episodes that are out so far. I'm loving it. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, I did the same I also thing. love at the place where I work. Like, do we have the, don't dox me, Joe, over you know, here. Sometimes, <laughs> I, sometimes I'm cagey, and other times I'm like, oh, here's my address. Yeah, we've had like full episodes about like the news of where you live and like yeah. tea stops that have opened up in your neighborhood. And then the other days after the episode, he's like, oh, we got to scrub this for information. <laughs> Someone's going to dox me. I was like, you mean your GitHub profile? Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> all of the information everywhere about you. Yep. So, um, so yeah, what's, uh, what's new with you, Seraphina? Anything? Um, not, not, not a whole lot, honestly. Uh, yeah, yeah just, just, just working, man. Yep. Uh, Te- doing doing tech lead things. Uh, there you go. Just you know, sometimes great, sometimes the worst. Uh, but it's the job, right? Uh huh. What's your favorite part about being a tech lead? The power. What's your, what's <laughs> your least favorite answer. part? What's your least favorite part about being a tech lead? Uh, the pressure. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I mean that's like a solid, yeah. <laughs> solid the power and the pressure. You should write a book called "The Power and the, the Pressure." Of- that's actually a great idea. Power and pressure: the story of a tech lead. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Uh, how about with you? Yeah. What's uh, what's happening? Um, not too much. I haven't. I think I've talked about it. I'm moving on from the place where we work. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> to a new place we, where you work. To a new place where I will work. <laughs> I'm going to, uh, to I'm going to Amazon, and I will be starting soon-ish. But in between now and then, uh, I will uh, be pretending to do work for a little while at the place where I currently work, and then taking some time off uh, to sort of I don't really know what yard work probably <laughs> decompress Just a bit, decompress a bit stuff like yeah. stuff around the house and like get ready to like remember what it's like to start a new job because the last time I started a new job was five years ago. Uh, so it's been a while. So if you have any tips, like how to be a good employee, starting employee again, let me know. <laughs> I, 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 I read a book, uh, the first 90 days. That's a good, that's a good one for getting started. I think it's more geared towards managers, a book. Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. It's like got some, got some, got some tips. I mean, it's no power and pressure, but. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. It's power and pressure. <laughs> such a, it's like already written in my mind. Like I yeah. can see, <laughs> I can see chapter one, <laughs> power. And then, <laughs> Heavy is the head that wears the Jira credentials. <laughs> we, yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, Jira is terrible. So yeah, that is the true. was one of the worst parts, actually. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, that'll be chapter two. Yes. Um, yeah. So we we used to work on the same team together. I was just thinking about like like oh we actually have more of a connection than than uh, than we're mentioning. The three of us were on a team, and uh, 
those were the glory days. I mean, I still feel like our team is in its in its glory days, but um, but when everyone was on the team, it was uh, you know, it was it was an interesting situation. <laughs> it was. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> Fuck you, man. <laughs> I think we, our our team has a lot, we, we already have and currently have strong personalities. And I think adding another strong personality to that, which was Evan, it was like just a lot of strong personalities at the same time. And everything is great. uh, But it was like just a lot of strongly held opinions, I feel. Uh, And that, that can be hard. Yeah. It was also, uh, I've talked to Joe about this, but it was like a terrible time in my personal life to make a change. Um, or I had like my, we were doing like renovations and then all sorts of other personal stuff going on, but the renovations had forced me into smaller and smaller rooms. So I was stuck in like an eight by 12 room for like six months. And the only shower I could take was my wife hosing me down in the backyard. (laughs) And like, it was me and all of my dogs and my wife in a tiny room that was like uncomfortably set up and we couldn't air condition it. It was just, I was like out of my mind. Uh, So it was not a great time either. And I was super pissed off that no one else wanted to write tests. And I like couldn't find my way. around that mentally and that's not the actual answer that's like super derivative but it's just like such a funny thing about our team especially considering we own like a lot of the testing tools for other teams and we yeah. like tell other people how to write tests and then right. when it comes to ourselves we're like Meh. yeah and we also like for the most part very much care about writing tests but, yes but it yeah. was uh yeah it was, yeah it was a funny funny situation was but i feel like we have uh we've done enough chit chat mm. and now i have one question for you what's that what are you reading well let me tell you what i'm reading uh i am reading a uh, an article called so today's article is called um Sponsoring Dependencies, the Next Step in Open Source Sustainability. So this is on a blog called Human Who Codes. And um, it was interesting. We were talking about uh, open source a lot lately. And uh, I thought that this one had like an interesting take on open source because this is something that we've seen. uh, And it's something that, you know, I've done a lot of thinking about as far as sponsoring open source projects and how to open source projects make their money. And... um, and so, yeah, this this article just has some really interesting takes. So I'll, I'll give the TLDR on it. Um, it's basically about uh, about how you know open source relies on people donating their time. That's kind of like the the uh, underlying fundamental thing keeping keeping a lot of open source going, and um, that's not always super super sustainable. So um, so you know you have projects that ha- that get funding. So there are some projects like Vue uh, that get a lot of funding, or you have projects like React that are uh, not necessarily externally funded, but they're funded by uh, the company that that kind of maintains them. So in in, in React's case, uh, Facebook or Meta. Um, but then you have all these other smaller projects, usually, which are, you know, kind of more fundamental to how even those bigger projects run. And those projects usually make zero money, like very little or zero money. And so the article is just sort of exploring uh, how we might change that or how we might, you know, kind of take, take the funding model and, um, and 
try something different or or even just like yeah just think about how to how to get more funding to some of the projects that um that maybe aren't getting as uh much visibility and could could use some funding so I'm going to jump in in the middle of this one. I just wanted to start with this because it was the most startling part of the article is talking about the s- several projects in the JavaScript ecos- ecosystem that receive more than $100,000 each year. And it was Babel at 303 Babel Babel. I would say Babel. 303,000 Webpack at 250,000 ESLint at 190 and Vue at 150 plus some other stuff. That is like a, a catastrophically low amount of money if I think about the scale that those things enable. I see like lots of head nodding, so I'm going to stop right there. That's fucked up. That was my immediate reaction to reading this article was that Babel only gets $300,000 a year, basically. I was like, are you kidding me? How much of all of the modern web at this point depends on Babel? And I know that there are potentially other solutions coming out, like it's like SWC and we're like, rewriting some of these tools and go and rust and things. Sure. But like, as of today, every, everything uses Babel, at least anything, anything modern, anything that's using react. Yeah. Right. Um, it's, it's wild. And it's a, it's a backbone of all of these tools and we're just expecting these people to do it. And there's multiple maintainers. So they're splitting that cost between themselves and whatever else they need to pay for. Right. And that is not an engineer's salary. No, I, not even close. Yeah. Not, I know. Cause I don't know how many like full-time maintainers, but if, if they have $300,000 total for Babel and it's more than, you know, three maintainers, that's a hundred. I mean, if it is three maintainers, that's a hundred thousand dollars per maintainer. I actually remember this from a couple of years ago, maybe like a year or two ago where there was a lot of press around one around the, I think the person who started Babel because he was paying himself a salary of a hundred thousand dollars a year, which in terms of, you know, much of the world is a great salary in, in terms of like full-time developers is, uh, you know, middling to kind of on the lower end of things. And so, and so he, he started paying himself a salary and people got upset about it. It was like, not, uh, it was not, people were not happy. Yeah. I remember that yeah. we talked, we actually talked about that at one point, uh, in another episode. Cause it was like, we were talking about how broken it is that so many open source projects power so much scale and then get nothing in return. But the, this article talks about like the, the stratified open source. So, you, you know, you've got the like forward facing things like Babel, everybody uses and gets what seems to be like the most amount of money, except if, you know, React obviously is the most because it's powered by like a big company, but there's just like open air, open source libraries. Um, Babel gets all this money, but it's still like the economics don't make sense because of how many other dependencies Babel uses that it could never possibly pay for in a reasonable way. Uh, and that's at the top, like 303 is at the way top. And if you're talking about, we're talking about American developer salaries, like U S developer salaries. Uh, so I want to like caveat that we're all in the U S and like near major population centers. So that kind of like changes how we look at salaries, but for someone who's doing something at this level, so Babel is a very complicated project, obviously like powers most of the web. It was genius to start with. It's incredible to maintain. It's probably really hard to maintain, just that number alone would probably I wouldn't balk at at all if a developer told me they made that working on Babel, like the whole number. And Babel still needs to pay all of their maintainers somehow and all their downstream dependencies if we're going to abide by 
the sponsorship model, which the article is talking about, which is sort of like sponsoring downwards. And it just like the numbers, don't the make numbers, sense. I agree with you. The numbers don't make sense. And and I think what you said is right. Like I would, I wouldn't buy it one developer working on Babel, making that amount of money, not, not exactly. all of them. Right. Um, I think, I think the article makes an interesting point about sponsoring downstream from these open source projects. But I actually think what would be more interesting is trying to get the community to do that from a higher level, right? Like how, how many engineer salaries would the place that we work for have to pay to create and maintain something like Babel? Right. Right. How much do we, how much time and developer productivity does our company get out of using tools like this? It's, it's a, a lot. lot. And, and, and we're not giving anything back. Yeah. Right. We, we have contracts with a few companies that are, that, that also sponsor some open source things, uh, kind of, you know, but we don't, I, I don't think we directly contribute to Babel at all or, or Webpack or ESLint. And we use all of those tools. And that actually seems like the place where, you could have more impact is if all of the companies that depend on all of these tools acknowledge the fact that they are saving a lot of time not paying engineers to build these tools and more actively uh, were, were sponsoring these things. Absolutely. That was actually, there was another point of this article. He talks about um, this person. I can't remember this person's name. Oh, uh, Marock Squires. And I remember when this happened. I think we all remember when this happened because we all felt the fallout of it where uh, this developer who had these um, these two packages that were pretty widely used, uh, they weren't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say these were like fundamental packages. They weren't like, um, you know, something like left pad that was used uh, back a couple of years ago that was used by like many, many, many packages and was sort of like uh, an important piece of code in there. But this person had these two projects. One was Faker and one was Colors. And he intentionally crippled them. He intentionally, uh, he published a version where one of them was, I think it was an empty repo. And another one was a version where it would, it was like an infinite loop or something like that. So it was basically like he published a version where if you would, if you upgraded, which in a lot of developers cases happens sort of automatically, they just don't even think about it. They'll just upgrade to the next version. Um, your code is going to break. And he did that uh, intentionally because he was basically, he said like, I'm sick of, of so many companies using my work and me not getting paid anything for it. Uh, and it's kind of like the, 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 the bargain you make, I guess, when you become, uh, an open source maintainer developer. And it's really, I, I think that's kind of, for me, like one of the worst parts about this is like these people, some, some of these people happen into, uh, you know, they don't intentionally develop a package that's going to be then used by many, many people. They just sort of like develop it and then people pick it up. And all of a sudden you're responsible for maintaining this thing that is getting issues filed with it and it ends up taking probably way more time and you're not getting paid for it. And people aren't nice when they're no. entering those issues. Right? There's like no <laughs> compassion for the fact that like you're maintaining this thing. I'm out of the goodness of your heart is like a little bit of an exaggeration, right? But like you're doing this for the community because you you saw a need for something, right? I, I most of the time I would think, um, and you're getting nothing in return, but mostly hate. You're just getting people coming to you with problems, and you're not getting any recognition or often support on your project. Yeah, I think so what we're talking about with the corporate sponsorship stuff absolutely makes sense and then becomes licensing again. And like and that's the 
you know, that was the model pre-open source, I think. I don't know. I didn't develop software like in the 80s or 90s, whatever it was. But that was, I think, things where people created packages of software and sold them on CDs and then you bought them or licensed them or something like that. And then we have the open source, like the rise of open source, which was sort of coinciding with the rise of the open internet as a dream. And then both of those things are sort of dead uh, or at least like crippled. Like the rise, the open internet is not exactly open anymore and open source software is is there's like some famous stories like Elasticsearch, the open source package being used by Amazon to power. Uh, I love Amazon. It's the best company in the world, <laughs> but this isn't great um, to power like a, a piece of software that they sold and then didn't pay any money back to Elasticsearch. That's one example. Also a great company. I love those guys. Um, but it's like a lot of companies do this and should license. So what I was thinking is like, is there a way to put observability into packages and know when they're used very often. But that, again, only um, really works for that top level, either client-facing or developer-facing uh, piece of software because all those other things, it would be very difficult to create like an observability tree for all of those things to know the level of usage that they have and properly compensate them with a license. I don't even know how you go about doing that. Like it's We're so entangled at this point. Yeah. It, uh, how do you go about, to, about doing that? But that honestly sounds like a good starting point, at least, you know, it's like something to think about it is, is how do I, if the companies aren't going to voluntarily pay me. And like, if you think about it from the, from a corporation's point of view, you, you think about it from a developer's point of view, it's like, yes, these corporations are making a lot of money off of something that I'm providing for free. If you think about it from the corporation's view, and I'm certainly not, uh, I'm, I'm not, uh, uh, defending this but but they're basically they have a bottom line and if if they are able to like get something for free then like why what what sort of financial incentive do they have to pay this person now of course there are other funny there are other incentives besides financial incentives but i think when you uh when you're talking to certain people in that corporation whether it be you know legal or or whoever's trying to you know people who are making the budget uh, it's pretty easy to justify free yeah, in the budget. I, I agree. Um, I think it's very easy to justify free, right? Um, and but the place where we work is currently going through kind of a transformation off of our internal version of Webpack, right? Like we wrote a something that d- does what Webpack does, and um, it's not the best. Uh, and we've had some issues with it. No, 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 no hate to like the people who originally wrote it or the, the changes that I've made to it that haven't made it better either. Right. Um, but well, I was thinking about, I was thinking about that because you mentioned like, Oh, how much would it cost for our company to make Babel? And I was thinking, well, we kind of did that with our version of Webpack, you know, our, our internal Webpack. And, uh, and it's like, yeah, it's a big it costs cost. a lot of money. It's a yeah. big cost. Year, years of staffing a team to maintain this thing uh, that is very, very complicated. And it's not easy to um, it's not easy to onboard developers, uh, new developers into into working in that system. It's very complicated. It's very specific to to what to what our org needed. Um, and we do we spent a lot of time on we spent a lot of engineering time maintaining that. And now we're spending even more engineering time getting rid of it. Mm-hmm. Right. So like the, the overall, if we had never gone down that route and had just adopted something open source, like Webpack from the start, we would have saved an indescribable amount of engineering time and effort. Uh, and it seems like that should, there still has to be a way to get 
organizations to recognize that and say, yes, like you are, we understand how much we would have spent. And so we're not going to give you that entire spend. No, but like 10% of that spend is still a, probably Babel's entire 300, like it, their entire budget right now, if not more. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's it's sort of easy to uh, to like look back from where we're at now and say, oh, we we would have saved so much money if we had done that in the first place. But I think, uh, you know, a lot of the reason why and I wasn't there for this decision, but I think a lot of the reason why we went with an internal solution was because like Webpack was not at uh, at the, the maturity that it's at today where we could have used it. I, there, I, we could do a whole other podcast on like why yeah. we went down that route, right? Like there were other reasons for it. There was not it was not a simple decision um, at the time, but. The reality, we it cost us a lot of money. Yeah, still, it's still costing us a lot of money, um, and we theoretically could have made a different choice there and saved a lot of money in engineering time. There's something sort of interesting there, though, that open source has another level of uh, usefulness besides just like you have this offer that you need at the time that you need it. It's that millions of people are vetting tons of things. So there's Webpack, but there was also like a bunch of other things that did what Webpack tried to do. Uh, and, you know, at the company that we work at, a lot of really smart people built one solution. Uh, but it's a it's like a sample size event of one. It's just they built the thing that they think that they thought they needed to build. It wasn't tested beyond the use case that we had. So then you run into edges where Webpack was like used in one. You know, it was the, the thing that, was victorious in like millions of uses. And then we get to benefit from all of that R&D that all these other companies do uh, and say like, oh, we're going to pick the winning horse and then we just get to use it. And there's sort of like, that's why trying to build something in-house is really tough, but then not paying for the thing that everybody else tested and made sure was really, really good for you and is battle tested and you know all that. It just seems like really unfair to everybody involved because we just get to benefit from it. I also think there's a there's an interesting side of that. It might not be as related as I think it is in my head, but um, I feel like a lot of times in interviews when we're like going for engineering jobs, people ask about side projects and open source contributions. Yes, and I'm like, okay, so you want me to do extra work that no one's paying for, including like your comp- you're you're not paying your employees to do any of this work. You want me to go out of my way to spend more time doing this to contribute to an ecosystem that then doesn't contribute back to me to look better for your interview. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. It's and no, it's like a, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, that was one of the things I was thinking about when, when we talk about, you know, the, the, the monetary benefit that people are get or not benefit, but how people get paid for these open source repos. If you're a maintainer and you're not getting paid in money, there are, there's an argument to be made that you maybe, you know, you are getting other benefits from this. So if I maintain Vue.js, like you know, I think all of us could probably name the person who maintains Vue.js. It's a huge library. And this person is like somewhat famous. He's never going to have a problem trying to get a job in tech ever again. And like that is only true because he built this giant uh, open source repo. And I think that that is kind of one of the one of the benefits. But I, I also think it's a um, I think it's like a not necessarily a benefit because there are so many people who, who, and this is, I think, where the article gets to is like so many people who are maintainers of much smaller uh, repos that don't get that. Yeah, I think it, it's it's almost it's like getting paid in clout, kind of right, yeah. which is which is interesting because so, so with what you said, yeah, he'll never, this person will never have a a problem getting a job. But what is that job going to be? Is that job 
a company paying him to maintain view? Or is that job a company taking him away from maintaining the thing that's helping the rest of the ecosystem, Mm, right? mm -hmm. And if you're going to hire that person and let them continue uh, maintaining this open source library, just contribute more, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. This wasn't done nefariously, but if you, there's like a certain, you can look at anything positively and negatively. I'm going to look negatively for a (laughs) second just because it feels good. The open source system feels a little odd right now, particularly because of Copilot on one end of it. Um, And there's this, there's this whole cycle that happens where people want to get better jobs. So they do side projects, just like you just said, Seraphine, and they like create libraries partly because they want to solve problems, but also because there's an incentive, like, you know, there's, there is an incentive, whether we like it or not, and whether it's forefront or rear front of your brain (laughs) while you're doing something, it's there. Um, so people do this so that they can get better jobs or some people do this so they can get better jobs and the companies use that as leverage to like choose whether or not they hire you and then use the thing that you built to make money. And then as you're shipping code to GitHub, Copilot is reading it and then they're making money off of it. But never in that are the people who are actually producing the code or rarely are they getting fairly compensated. Because if you talk about the thing that uh, was built in-house at the company where we work, those people were fairly compensated for their work because they were paid a legitimate salary. And there was like a number of them, like four or five people or something like that built the equivalent of like whatever a webpack would be. I forget how many it was over like a long time and then maintained it for a long time. It was one. <laughs> the, the, initial ver- the initial version was one person. Uh, but you know, the, the, that uh, turned into an entire thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So then, no, no, you're good. That's funny. That's funny. I just see this one finger appear, <laughs> <laughs> but it's just not enough. And like there, that's, that's a princely sum for that. That's like a, a million dollar piece of software. If you think like however X many sell like salaries over a year or two years or whatever it is, it's like a million dollars and, you know, view like, or Babel, the most important backbone of the internet makes 300,000 a year open SSL made $2,000 a year. OpenSSL is like foundational to the $15 trillion internet yeah. that, that's just sitting around and no one gets paid for that. Yeah. And I think that speaks to to the kind of like these, this is really the point of the article is these low visibility, but high, high impact uh, open source projects that, that are not getting funding. I think it's also interesting. The projects that, so, so if we take Babel and let's say, a potential replacement eventually SWC or one of these other tools that are kind of coming on the market. Um, wh- what's the expectation for the long-term maintenance of these tools, which have lots of things currently built on them, but they're not going to be the hottest thing forever, right? There's always going to be innovation. There's always going to be something newer. You might have five, 10 good years, but most likely there's going to be a newer replacement at some point. And who then is responsible for making sure Babel doesn't break everything in five years, right? And is it, is there, yeah, I don't know. It just seems like if, if, if part of what we're doing is working on clout, right, then your incentive is to build the next newer best thing and not continue maintaining the old thing. And that's, that's a great their, point. Right. Yeah, sorry. I kind of rambled there, but I think you got it. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a great point because it's the same thing. It's the same thing with, um, you know, a lot of incentives are based on, uh, 
being able to pitch something new rather than pitch, hey, I made this feature 10% better. It's like, but that stuff is important too. It's really important to keep the things that are running the engine, running the engine. Um, there's a company that that I think uh, is doing some of this well. This is the first company that I can think of that that I think kind of like hits a bunch of things that we've talked about, which is Vercel. And we've talked about Vercel a bunch in the past. We've talked about Next.js. But like Vercel seems to have a pretty good model as far as funding their open source because they have an open source version of their, pro- of their products. And then they have uh, an enterprise version. And a lot of companies are doing this, but it seems to be to me, when I look around, it seems to be one of the more successful ways of maintaining these things where you have, uh, you have your open source version, everybody can use it. And then there's like an upgraded version. So, so if you require, you know, certain things, if you, or if you're a company, then you, then you pay for it and they make a lot of their money. Yeah. I think what's interesting about that though, is, um, if we, if we take the Vercel example with, uh, with Next.js in particular, um, Next currently depends on Babel and Webpack and all of these other tools. And so mm-hmm. how much of the profit that they're making, are they putting, are they putting back into sponsoring the tools that they, that they are then it's similar to the Amazon thing, right? Like they have built on top of somebody else's open source work and now they're selling it. Um, sometimes it's all, it also, it's also open source. Um, and I think that's, I think it's interesting because if I remember correctly, in the past couple of years, Vercel has also hired several of the lead developers from from Webpack and and other of these large tools and others. And, others. Yeah. and so now some of the, I think those people are most likely working on new replacements for those things at Vercel. Um, and hopefully those will continue to be open source, but it has taken something away from maintaining Webpack and, and these other things because they are now at Vercel. Yep, that's true. I was actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because I, I i wasn't really thinking about that. What I was thinking about was was Rich Harris, the creator of Svelte, who they also recently hired. And I think they hired him to continue working on Svelte. So that kind of goes back to what you were saying is like hiring the person, are you hiring the person to continue working on the thing or are you hiring them to work on your thing? Well, it sounds like actually uh, Vercel is pretty interested in in like supporting Svelte, which is great but at the same time it's like well what about these other these other projects um the you know we talk about how vercel is is currently kind of like running off of the back of like webpack for example but then what if you go lower uh in this article he mentions uh, a dependency called he he and this article has i mean this uh, dependency has like 13 million downloads a week or something it's like it's like an order of magnitude higher than than um vue.js which is the one that gets gets a lot a lot more um visibility and um and so he he talks about uh i wonder if there's a model or he he sort of posits is there a model that we can use to to keep the uh keep the funding flowing downstream to to dependencies like that yeah i think i i do say i i have i take some issue with the examples that they chose and the downloads that they chose because while it's correct he has a lot more downloads than view. He has less, if I remember correctly, um, less downloads than something like react. Right. So it's not, it does seem like those examples were chosen, um, specifically to illustrate this point where like react is also a very, very popular library. I think it's 15 million weekly downloads or something like that. So, so kind of similar scale and it is, sponsored slash I don't think I don't even know if sponsored is the right word by meta slash Facebook um so I 
I think there, I, I think there, are, there could have been different examples to, to illustrate that point. And I, yeah. I want to jump back though, to you're mentioning what happens in five years. Um, and whenever I hear argue or talks about open source stuff, the first thing I think about is jQuery. And the reason why is many of us have forgotten jQuery exists or like what jQuery is for. jQuery is still used probably on like a, a fifth of all of the websites on the internet, maybe more. I don't know. It's a lot. Like every WordPress website probably has jQuery shipped with it and WordPress powers like two fifths of the internet. Um, and j people are still maintaining jQuery and no one pays them any money at all. Like I don't, if you're talking about the trickle down effect of economics, <laughs> like no one's paying jQuery and they're still maintaining stuff. So think uh, five, five years ahead. The only way I see this happening is just a further fractioning through forking of these things. So like Babel isn't, you know, is just a dusty library. No one's maintained for two years at this point. Let's imagine post-apocalyptic Babel future. And, you know, you're going to go to it and it's, gonna, it's not going to work for what you want. So you're just going to fork it. And then you're, you're just going to have this sort of fractal. I don't know that that's bad. Um, it's not great because then they have the burden of them maintaining the thing. And then that sinks. It, it's not good in the sense of overall, the loss of productivity for the entire industry drops just a little bit and stuff like that happens because everybody is then maintaining some version as opposed to centralizing those problems and, and applying more person power to making it better. Um, but it's just like, I don't know what happens in five years with, with these things. It, and also tech, tech transformations take a really long time, especially at, in larger orgs, right? So like if jQuery went down, like if someone did the colors thing on jQuery, like the place where, oh. the place where we work would be in trouble. Like we would need to be very careful about that, even though we are on the path to a, a much different stack in the future, a lot of our customer facing website still has features that rely on that. So like we, we our, our companies have to be aware of this because we can't change fast enough to keep up with the open source community. That's a good point. Yeah. The, the larger the company, the harder it is to pivot. I think we like we saw this probably with Log4JS problems um, where it's like small. <laughs> I don't mean because like PTSD. <laughs> but, um, the smaller smaller organizations that had like less entangled systems could probably have you probably like were able to respond to that pretty fast. Wait, oh, Larger companies. I, we should just pause and like and like say like Log4j was a, a dependency like just for anybody who's missing context. It was a there was like a, a, a security you know, issue with log4j and it affected many, many, many people across everything. I actually think I just said log4js because I add S to anything with a J. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My bad. <laughs> That's funny. I was like a Freudian slip. Uh, log4j is screwed a bunch of people over and it, like at bigger companies, I think it takes like many, many people, many, many sleepless nights to figure that stuff out. Um, so it, it just puts bigger companies at risk but bigger companies are the ones making the most money off of these things. There seems to be a through line in there that I can't find, but it's like tugging at the back of my mind. Well, what's interesting there too is what I remember with Log4j, I, and I've had kind of forgotten about this, but I remember when this when that whole thing happened and companies across the world were freaking out because there was this vulnerability and they had to get a patch and they were going to the maintainers of Log4j to like, hey, patch this, patch this, patch this. But like, 
The whole point is that it's open source and you can patch it yourself. Like it's not like it's not like if you make one fork to solve your own internal vulnerability, you uh, are then you need to go uh, publish that fork for other people to use. You just like you, you can fix it yourself. Um, and of course, the people who maintain Log4j have a, a, a much bigger, you know, much more context for what's going on there and all that. But. I just remember that seeing that and seeing a lot of reaction to that from the, either the maintainers or p- people who had strong thoughts had maybe been in similar positions where they said, these maintainers are not on the hook to fix your code. It's, it is their code because like, you know, they, they are the ones who wrote it, but like, you're using it in this open source model. And I feel like that comes back to like the, the way we interact with these maintainers, right? Like we, we just don't give them the respect that they deserve, I think, as a, as a, um, not organization. I don't know what the word I'm looking for is community. I think, right. We, we yeah. only go to them and we only care when things are wrong. And I think that's actually, you know, similar. We've, uh, I know that the three of us have all worked on platform teams. And so a lot of what we do is write code that other engineers consume and use. And a lot of our interactions with people are only when things go wrong and it makes it really hard to do the job sometimes because it's just, you're only getting negative feedback. And so how could you do that and not be paid for it? Right? Like it's okay because I'm paid for it. That's the job, but I wouldn't want to do that if I'm not being compensated for it. I'm just putting myself in a bad position for my mental health at that point. Yep. Well, I want to say this without sounding like an old man yells at clouds, (laughs) but it's going to sound like, uh, it's going to sound like (laughs) boomery. Um, 34. There's like, um, there can be a sense of entitlement that runs through some communities of web development. I don't really, this sounds like too grandiose, but if you think like, if you have a problem and you're using someone's thing and it breaks, but you borrowed it and then you go back to them and say, fix it so I can keep playing with it. That seems crazy. You know, like if you think about it in any other term, like you borrow someone's car, it's a great gift that they've given to you. And then you blow a tire on the car and you bring it back, like fix my damn tire so I can go back out and run donuts in your vehicle. And then you make them do it and you yell at them until they fix it. (laughs) It just seems like a really odd way to do business. And there's like another side to this. Yes, we could fund these projects, but also yes, corporations or large companies that have large budgets and have, enough capacity on staff, we could also change the way that we look at these things where we're not entitled to NPM and packages, NPM packages that work perfectly every single day. Cause you don't, no one is expecting you to write software that works perfectly every day. You try, but it doesn't work that way. So that's the same expectation has to apply to them. And if it's broken and you're like receiving benefit from it, help fix it. Because to Joe's point, like you can contribute. Anyone can contribute to open source. Where I think most people stop is they're like, I'm going to go file an issue and then complain about it until someone does something about it. And I've done that for sure. Uh, like I've done that. I've also contributed, but more so 70, 30, 80, 20, if I'm honest, I've just, I've just filed issues. And that's sort of a bummer. If I look back at my own track record, it's something I want to fix. But I think, you know, corporations could also provide 80, 20, like support or something like that to uh, open source libraries that they use and say like, well, we're going to lend some of our massive what, like back, well, backlog of developers to your problems and help in that way and relieve the burden in that way. Yeah. I, uh, I read a great article. Maybe we'll link it in the, in the description. Um, 
Maybe maybe, we'll, maybe we should talk about it on a future episode. Although this is the one about open source, so we can't have any more open source uh, episodes. We've really like backed ourselves into a corner with the whole like the one about title, right? Because <laughs> once we do one about open source, we can't do any more. Um, this this article was uh, was about um, is about a guy who basically this guy went back through his old posts and was like. And was like uh, he found he found some old PRs or old issues that he had filed where he was like super entitled and he was like why aren't you fixing this and and basically yelling at the maintainers and his his article was like I am so sorry for for how I was acting it's the first I, like you never see articles like this you always see people trying to cover their tracks and I I was so happy to read this article yeah and I, I think Evan to to what you were saying or to both of your points here um. It's okay to just enter the issues. You know, you might not have time to make change yourself either, but you can enter it in a respectful way that actually has actionable feedback in it. And like someone can read and understand the problem and not be a jerk about it. Right. Like I think there, there are, there is a difference between those two things. Like we don't, it's, it's fine if you don't have time to make the fix, but we can all be respectful in how we deal with each other online. Right. Um, which is a whole other problem that is not unique to, um, the engineering community. Uh, we are mean to each other online everywhere, but uh, <laughs> it would be nice if we could figure that out within our own little subsection of the internet, right? Um, yeah, I also had a question, totally unrelated. The the one about open source and these things. Are you? Did you take this? The one about uh, from the title of friend up friends episodes. Yes. Okay, cool. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah. Oh, I did. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, I was like, ooh, the one about this. And it started off because um, my wife and I are rewatching Friends uh, because it's very comforting. And I was in a period of high stress for the last five months, like doing interviews all over the place. So when times like that happen, I need to go back to like 30 minute sitcoms yeah. to comfort me yes. and watch like one at the end of the night. Uh, so we would watch, we, we gone through like, you know, Parks and Rec in the office or whatever, all, the, all of those. And then we got HBO Max to watch Friends. And it's been just great so <laughs> i love that i it's, it's like a valid um it's a valid like coping mechanism to watch something that you've already yeah. watched before because there's no surprises and it's like very soothing for your anxiety so yep yeah i consider it 21st century meditation yeah when you watch a sitcom <laughs> that you've already watched like a million times yeah. because it's a catatonic state you don't have to think about anything and you can complete the stress response and friends has been that for me and also like friends holds up i don't care who you are <laughs> Friends is still funny to me now. <laughs> it's just like there's some stuff that doesn't hold for sure. There's some stuff that doesn't hold up because it was in the 90s. Like caveat there. Yeah. But man, there's some funny stuff in there still. Nice. Um, I would say let's take this opportunity to transition into uh, unless anybody has any last thoughts about about this open source stuff. But I would say let's transition into what are you learning? We got to get a sound effect for that. We got to get a good sound effect for that. We have our, our trash sound effect. You have an awful one. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to play it again. Oh, it's the best. What are you doing? <laughs> Stop doing it. We... <laughs> you keep doing it. We're going to get some mileage out of this. The first uh, episode I listened to of you guys was where Joe introduced that. And I, <laughs> that, that little segment that made me laugh really hard because you did it. It was great. Yep. Sorry. Nice. Uh, all right, let's see. Who should we start with? I, I, I have the mic, so I'm going to go with Evan. Oh, okay. So I recently bought a new keyboard. Um, 
Did I, I don't know how to talk about this. No, I did not. It's a ZSA Moonlander. Uh, it's like a full bore, really weird spaceship looking split mechanical keyboard because I've been getting some wrist pain. Um, and it's like the keys aren't even mapped. There's multiple layers. It lights up in different ways. It's this, I cannot type a <laughs> fucking letter on it. it like, <laughs> I feel like a baby duck learning a computer for the, uh, why would a baby duck learn a computer? <laughs> I feel like I'm learning for the first time. So they, they come with classes to help you uh, type. So that has been what I'm learning, which is like, it comes with a game and um, like their own learning thing that plugs right into the keyboard and tracks your particular key flash mapping because you can it's open source you can just map the whole key uh, keyboard to whatever you want but it's really really hard so i've been doing that for like an hour a day trying to just become proficient again and hopefully i become a full wizard and learn uh vim like joe because the there's particular buttons that are like designed for vim as they say it's like yeah it's like uh, extra extra thumb it's like you, not just your space bar you get like a whole a whole array of buttons know, down by your thumb like five keys by my thumb i don't know what to do with any of them but if i did vim i'd probably would but <laughs> right now it's like space bar but this is what i'm learning right now which is how to type again nice uh the story of me and the Moonlander, and my wife got one too, so we do it together. And the sound of them, I got like a custom copper tactile switch. It's just, it's not like the super clickety clack loud ones. It's this like ASMR response that I get yeah, when I yeah. use the keyboard. Yeah. It's incredible. Oh my god, I love it. So uh, I wish they would sponsor me. It was like a four hundred dollar keyboard. <laughs> I can't like I. It's stunning how expensive it was. It made me really sad when I bought it. But I'm, that's what I'm learning right now. Uh, Seraphina, what are you learning? Um. That's a great question. I don't know why my mind just went totally blank. Um, I've been I've been trying to focus on some like non non work related things. Um, so I I've been playing guitar for my whole life, um, but I stopped for a very very long time. Um, and when I first was learning, um, the person that I took lessons with was very much like didn't want to make you do like the playing the scales or any music theory. They were very much like bring me a CD of songs you want to learn and I will make tabs for you and we will learn them together kind of a thing, um, which was great when I was younger because I wanted to learn to play songs. And so I got to do exactly what I wanted. Um, but now that I'm older, I like want to understand the theory. I want to be able to like jam with people more. Um, so I've been like going back and taking kind of beginner intermediate lessons in like skills and theory and like working on technique um, instead of just learning songs. Um, and it's been great. I've been playing again for like a month after, God, I don't know, like it's probably eight years of not really playing, but like picking it up every once in a while. And now I'm back to like every night ish. Um, and so it feels, it feels good. That, Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. I, I, I love hearing that about like, you know, kind of revisiting something that you learned one way and like trying to learn it in a different way. And it's been long enough that you can kind of relearn something. Um, I always kind of wonder, you know, is it, is it better to learn something for the first time by just exposure, like what you're talking about, where it's like, you're just exposed to the things that you like. I, that's kind of my hunch is that I think when you're first starting to learn something, like start with something that is really compelling, which for music is like, I want to learn to play the songs that I like to listen to. Um, but then, you know, you do give up something with that because you don't often get the kind of like the theory or like the deliberate practice where you're like deliberately doing something. Um, you might get some of that, but you're deliberately doing something a little bit harder than, than what your, uh, than what your current level is. 
Yeah, I think I wish I had just stuck with it a little bit more when I was younger and done this kind of stuff then. But it was a very deliberate choice on my and my parents' part to go with this particular instructor and his style. Because previously to that, several years earlier, before I was learning guitar, my parents put me in violin lessons with like this, I think it's the Suzuki method. Um, And it is in tense. You have to practice like every night for like more than an hour, like with your parent watching you. And it's like very, very intense. And it almost destroyed me and my father's relationship. And I like refused to pick up a violin again, because I absolutely hated the fact that I had to practice that way every night. Um, So at least for me and my personality, when I was younger, doing it just based on engagement was going to be the only way it was going to happen. That's the key though. Like my my dad taught me drums and my dad um, wouldn't let me touch a drum set for a year. And that's all I wanted to do was play the drums because all my friends were like (laughs) doing stuff. And I literally had just a rubber pad and sticks for a year and he wouldn't let me. And I had to learn like the stick control for the modern drummer. And I had to practice a million hours and that went on for so long. And what it did was made me hate the drums. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. I, I stuck with it for a long time because I have a stubborn personality and played for like 10, 12 years, but I didn't like what I was doing. And that like took all the joy out. I feel like it has to be a mix. Mm-hmm. Like you do, you do some of the foundational work, but you have to keep the carrot in front of you in some way, not just the stick of like, well, am I foundationally correct? Mm-hmm. Cause otherwise it just sucks. Yeah. Like you, you're really, really technically good, but you have no soul when you play or like there, there's no joy in it. And I think you can hear joy in music. Maybe I'm a weirdo, but I truly think you can. No, absolutely. And yeah. Yeah. So like you gotta have both. But it's cool to like, you've got the foundation of, I love the guitar. I've got this friend relationship with my guitar. And now I want to become, you want to get a little like more serious, quote unquote, or whatever it is. Yeah. That's cool. It's nice to do. And I feel like, you know, just being older, like you have more discipline in general. So like, it's easier for me to be like, yeah, I'm going to spend 30 minutes practicing my scales and then I'll go play a song that I want to play, you know? And it's like having a little more age to, to understand the delayed gratification, uh, I think helps a lot. Yep. Yeah. Joe, what are you learning? Uh, let's see. This week I am learning. So so we've talked a little bit about, um, you know, kind of picking up different different things. Uh, and we've talked a little bit about auth. And so <clears throat> trying to fill in some of the gaps that I have with around auth. Um, one of the things is uh, a refresh token. So I like kind of, you know, I've heard the term refresh token and I vaguely knew what it was, but I didn't have like a solid understanding of what a refresh refresh token is for. This is getting very nerdy. This is way nerdier than your guitar learning. Um, but, uh, but I was like, yeah, I want to, I want to like, I want to have a, a solid understanding of this. So, um, so I, I just been like reading up on specifically what refresh tokens are for. Cause that was kind of also like, so, you know, we have we have JSON web tokens and we have like an auth token, but like what's the current sort of, you know, what are what's the current best practices as far as storing that? Like should you store a JWT in a cookie? Uh, is it okay to store in local storage? I was just kind of reading about that stuff. And turns out uh auth0, the like auth0 site recommends storing your token in your local storage, but like there's a big caveat here because like you don't want to store your auth token in your uh, local storage. You want to store your refresh token in local storage. And not only that, you need to make sure that your backend has a uh, refresh token rotation. So this is like it was ended up being like a, a much more interesting and nuanced question in my mind. Um, but uh, but basically the 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 thing that I didn't understand about refresh tokens and here's kind of where this is coming around to is like I didn't understand that. Um, 
you know, that a refresh token actually isn't going, it, it doesn't authenticate you with your, uh, with the, the service that you're trying to hit. A refresh token is only good with the auth service to get you a new valid auth token. So like the auth token is the keys to the kingdom. The auth token is what gets you into your account at Google or whatever, you know, it gets you into your Gmail. You need an auth token for that, but the refresh token won't get you that, but what it will get you is a, a valid auth token. So like the thing about JSON web tokens is they expire, uh, or sorry, they can't be revoked. So you kind of need to have them expire pretty quickly. And in order to not have to keep logging back into your Gmail every hour or whatever, you need uh, a way to like to revalidate, and that's what a refresh token is for. So you can you can uh, the the auth service can issue a new refresh token uh, that you can store locally, and it's good uh, to get a new a, a valid auth token. And so it's uh, anyway kind of kind of went down a down a little rabbit hole there, but that's this that's what I'm learning about. I'm sure somebody's going to correct me. Please correct me if because I also am not trying to be like an authority on auth. I'm trying to learn a little bit more about auth. So if you're not I trying to be the authority. Oh, oh. <laughs> sorry. I oh, we need a we need a sound effect for myself. that. <laughs> um, I think that's great, Joe. It's just going to be going boo. <laughs> I get booed a lot. It's okay. I can take it. Um, I was going to say I think that that's great, Joe. I uh, the place where we work, there's a certain team that has to implement a bunch of that stuff. And is probably going to be reaching out to our team for help on that. So it's really good that you have some of that context. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, every time we work on auth, I have to go read the docs again about six different times. Yeah. Um, I because it's kind of always changing. Not always, but it like they're they're the the kind of like best practices keep getting updated. Which I think is good, right? You know, yeah. we. Uh, we want things to be secure and that's always changing. So it has to keep updating, but it's, if it's not something you regularly work on, it's tough to keep up to date. Yeah. And yeah. to be clear, we are not the authority on auth at the place where we work. Like we build oh. things kind of around in that, in that we, we build the libraries that will help people use this, but like we are in no way representative of uh, auth at the place where we work. But, but hilariously involved in a lot yeah. of the off conversations. <laughs> and I always feel like, eh, I don't really think I should be here, but okay. <laughs> Oops. All right. On that note, is it, uh, is it time to, is it time to get set sail? And bring in. <laughs> Do you have the other one? Now, question for the listener. Was that the, was that the sound effect or was that Evan just now? You'll never know. <laughs> Well, that's a that's a two part sound effect. One of us is the foghorn, yep. and one of us is the bird. Yep, uh, that's right. One of us is the foghorn, and the other one is the bird. Uh, which is which? I'm going to leave it to you, dear listener, to figure out which is which. So, who starts the uh, the good news cruise? <laughs> we all just blank stare at each other. Uh, let's see. Oh. <laughs> oh. Why don't you start, Sarah? Do you, do you have to, did, did you hear me ask that question? Because I got no visual, like, re- re- <laughs> we're gonna do some editing on this. <laughs> I thought, I thought not gonna be a lot of post production. I think we're gonna not do quite as much editing as the listener would like. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm happy to start, it's just a little less. Uh, so I saw this, you may have also seen it on, um, I think I saw it on Reddit. 
Uh, there is a like 17 year old who developed a new version of an electric motor that is like 31% more efficient than the like most existing designs. Um, and I think that's awesome because yay, uh, teenagers being involved in STEM and innovating and like good for him. And B, uh, I'd love to see uh, forward movement in electric motoring. I that was the worst way I could have said that. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> electric motoring. <laughs> I mean, it's solid good news though. That's pretty pretty cool. And I always think like, what was I doing at seventeen? Not electric motoring. Not not electric motoring. Oh, <laughs> uh, I've I've got a good one. Can I go? Absolutely, you can go. Okay, a while back, I don't know if everybody remembers the Ocean Cleanup Project. It was like a, another teenager that developed some system to clean up the great uh, garbage patch in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Well, they just hit, as of July 25, the first 100,000 kilograms of garbage removed from the patch, uh, which is a pretty great – a kilogram is 2.2-something 2 .2 pounds – so that's a couple hundred thousand pounds. So hundreds and or thousands of tons of garbage has already been removed and they've already, uh, they're deploying like they have multiple systems. So the first system is like sort of inefficient. The second system has now collected a hundred thousand kilograms of plastic. And then they've developed another system, which is going to be 10 times more effective. And that one's coming out soon. Um, so these, they're just crushing it and they're pulling like hard drives and, it's unbelievable what ends up in the ocean. So I thought that was pretty cool. They're doing great work out there and they're working towards making it economically self-sustainable uh, by turning the plastic into recycled plastic and then selling that into the industry. Uh, so that's pretty cool. That's my good news. That is good news. That is great. Do you think recycled? It's no electric motoring. <laughs> electric motoring. <laughs> but maybe they need some electric motoring to make the machines more efficient. Oh, Yeah. Oh, for yeah. sure. Or yeah. they, could, electric they could use the plastic to feed into the electric motoring. I don't even know how that would work. They, uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> That's nice. My, oh, I know this is supposed to be the good news segment here, but once they collect and recycle the plastic, does it just end up back in the garbage bag? <laughs> Is this a self-sustaining Well, that's part, of the, uh, that's part of the economically self-sustainable yeah. <laughs> is that they keep throwing garbage into the ocean. <laughs> And then I don't, you know, so that I didn't want to get into that. Yes, there is something uh, a little weird about that. So they say, like, we're going to give the ocean plastic a new life and they're going to work to recycle the plastic and transform it into durable plastic products. Um, I, I don't know if that's good. It seems like they're just creating another cycle. Yeah. Of collecting ocean because we can't really get rid of plastic. <laughs> what I hope is that we make it like we just like throw it into the sun one day. Yeah. You know, if we like get enough plastic and we get like some system of a conveyor belt into space, we just hawk it into the sun. Maybe we can do that. I think someday. we need innovations in plastic motoring. Ooh. Plastic motoring. Well, I did one of my good news is oh, like three or four episodes back was that they found some worm that eats plastic it's a new worm i think they i don't know if they made it like captain america or something like in a lab but it eats plastics and then expels just carbon which is great so they can maybe if they make enough of these worms 
they could eat the plastic. And that's plastic motoring. I like that. I just, I, I, I hope that we don't have to live in a world overrun by these worms at some point. That's tomorrow's, tomorrow's problem. problem. Then we'll have the great worm. The great yeah. Worm. yeah. Yeah. We'll have, to, worm we'll, have to, uh, we'll have to invent a bird that eats the plastic worms. Yeah. <laughs> it's a cycle of life. Uh, speaking of birds, my, my good news is bird related. Uh, a segue. Uh, yeah, our first that might be our first segue. Um, so uh, apparently there is an island in between uh, what is it in between Antarctica and Australia, I think, that was home to uh, many penguins. It was like hundreds of thousands of penguins, um, and uh, the island w- had been taken over by uh, an invasive species of rabbit and r- I think rat too, and somebody named uh let's see what is this person named melissa houghton brought her dog named wags onto the island and uh wags helped get rid of these invasive species and brought the penguin population back so thank you wags for today's good news is is wags just waiting knee deep in blood on that (laughs) island like Like one dog one dog solved the problem that's amazing i know I don't. I, I don't know the rest of the story. There's Are you sure definitely... his name isn't Cujo? <laughs> yeah, Cujo. <laughs> Wags will never be the same dog. Yeah. <laughs> also, you said Antarctica and Australia, and in my mind, I thought I thought you meant Greenland and Australia. I was like, Yo, there's a lot in between there. <laughs> yeah, it's an island called Africa. I know. I was like, so Europe. <laughs> But I had to, I literally had to Google a map on the side and I was like, oh, Antarctica. <laughs> I feel like I should have studied well, more. I'm glad that you just play Geo, GeoGuessr. We talked about GeoGuessr a couple of weeks ago. Just play more no. of that. Uh, I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you called yourself out for that because you could have, we could have just let that slide. You never, you didn't have to let anybody know that you thought Greenland was Antarctica. Culpability. <laughs> I've also been mean on open source things before, so they'll copy that. Too. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we are just about at time here. Any last words? Any? Any? Uh, how about you, Serafina? Any? I want to. I want to make sure you get your your last words, and if you have them, I don't think I have them. I uh, this was this is a lovely conversation with the two of you. It felt like felt like old times, and uh, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, it was super it was fun. Great. All right, everybody. Well, uh, we will see you next week. And um, I hope you have a fantastic weekend.